the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, the diaspora was a technical word that was used by Jewish people to describe people who lived outside of the Promised Land, people who had been dispersed around the world. And oftentimes that dispersing was the result of persecution. That word diaspora is not one that we hear too often these days, but it certainly was prevalent at the beginning of the church, of the body of believers at Christ's time. And we're going to hear more about that as Pastor Leighton Sheely from Church of the Highlands gives us an introductory look at the book of James. Then we'll spend a lot of time in the book of James over the next several weeks studying verse by verse. I'm Mike Trout. Thanks for joining us. This is an outreach of Church of the Highlands in San Bruno on the web at highlands.us. So the diaspora began in around 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded the ten tribes to the north and carried them away into captivity. That's the famous ten tribes, ten lost tribes that we oftentimes hear about in history. And it continued through and beyond 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar invaded the south and took away many people to Babylon in captivity. And so what he was talking about is the dispersion that came as a result of persecution. This letter was written after Stephen was martyred, and there was a persecution in the church, and the believers were dispersed. They were dispersed into Judea and Samaria, and according to Acts, even as far away as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Syrian Antioch. And so that gives you a background on what he's talking about, the the Christians everywhere. And he knew that these young believers are going to be facing trials and persecution and suffering and temptations and pressures. And so he wants to equip them to persevere through it all. Now, the diaspora was also significant in the spread of the early church as well. And what had happened during the diaspora of the Old Testament is that when the Jews would go into a city, they would build synagogues. And in those synagogues, they would teach the Old Testament, the Word of God in the Old Testament. Remember that Paul, when he would go into a city, the first place he'd go was the synagogue. And he'd go into the synagogue because the people there had some understanding of God because they knew his Old Testament, and he helped them connect the dots. And some of them believed, and others did not. It created contention, and so eventually he would have to not be teaching in the synagogue, and he would teach elsewhere. But those synagogues, that diaspora, allowed the church to quickly spread across the world. And then he says, greetings. Greetings is a regular salutation in Greek letters. When we write a letter, we usually say what? Dear so-and-so. Greetings is like the dear, okay? It is very different than the greeting that was used by the Apostle Paul, who used a distinctively Christian greeting, grace and peace. It is rare in the New Testament. It's only found two other times, one in Acts chapter 23, where the Roman officer was writing a letter of safe passage for Paul, and then in Acts 15, where the letter is being sent from the council in Jerusalem that James presided over. This is unusual because we're so familiar with the writings of Paul. 
And usually Paul has some kind of an extensive preamble. He, he gives thanks to God, he gives a prayer, he gives some kind of remark about news that he has received about them and so forth. And this directness and brevity is a characteristic of James and it marks the entire epistle. The sentences are short, they are direct, and when he's finished and he gives his final admonition, he stops as quickly as, he's, as he began, he, it's abrupt. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so he begins with, my brethren, my brethren. He's about to give an admonition, and he wants uh, to make sure that they understand that it is expressed in love. And he takes up the issue of trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Count it all joy. 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 You know, there are some who teach that Christianity, Christians, should thank God for every trial that comes into our life. We should thank God for that cancer. And so on and so forth. I got to confess, that just does not make any sense to me at all. It kind of paints Christianity as masochistic in some fashion. Spiros uh, Zodihadis is a brilliant Greek scholar, and he explains that the word count or consider should be translated, think forward, consider, regard. As you live in your present sufferings, consider the future. Think to the future. It may be dark now, but the future is bright. As I watched cancer rob my father of his health and vitality, it was difficult to be joyful about cancer. Every day his agony grew I was not joyful for his sufferings, but I did find joy as I was reminded that we, his family and friends, had been given an opportunity to say goodbyes and resolve relational issues. I did take joy in being reminded that my father had fought the good fight. He had finished the race. He had kept the faith and that Jesus was waiting to give him a crown of righteousness and a brand new incorruptible body. He was telling people about Jesus to the very end, and he continues to do so through his testimony. I did not take joy in the cancer that took his life. I did take joy in reflecting on a life well-lived and the reward that awaits him in eternity. That's why it's so important and why I remind our church family so often that it's important to keep the big picture in mind. Eternity with Jesus in heaven is the big picture. And if we narrow our focus on the immediate, in times of suffering or temptation, we are more prone to fall. When we keep our eyes on the big picture, it provides stability through those times of difficulty. I used to ride motorcycles. I don't anymore. Much to the celebration of my wife, my family, my church family, and so forth. I can remember when I was riding motorcycles that I had some kind of a fascination with the front tire. I, I don't know what it, what it was, but I would come to a stoplight or a stop sign, I'd put on the brakes, and I would look down the forks at the front tire. And when the bike hit about three or four or five miles an hour when it lost its natural stability, it'd either fall to the left or fall to the right. However, when I didn't focus on the front tire, but I looked up at the horizon and I saw the big picture, I could bring that motorcycle to a complete stop and keep it upright for a few seconds just by shifting my weight. 
We've got to not be looking down the forks at the front tire, focusing our attention on the immediate. We need to be looking up, seeing the horizon, seeing the big picture, and that will provide us stability as we're going through those difficult times. The Apostle Paul experienced joy in the midst of his trial as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. And in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were beaten because of their testimony for Christ, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Their rejoicing was not in the moment of persecution, but in anticipation of the reward for those who suffer for Christ. The writer of Hebrews gives us some incredible insight into Jesus' perspective on suffering. It reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is it saying? Keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep looking up. Keep the big picture in mind. But did you hear what the writer said about Jesus' perspective on suffering? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? It says plainly, Jesus endured the cross. His joy did not come from the crucifixion itself but rather the product of that crucifixion, the joy set before him. The joy was on the other side of that cross experience. And as he hung on the cross, he didn't focus on the experience itself, but he looked forward to the joy set before him. He kept the big picture in mind. As we go through difficult experiences, we've got to keep the big picture in mind. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. And God is using the experiences of this life to form us into the kind of people he wants us to be for all eternity. And if that formation process requires suffering, it has to take place in this world. Because in the next world, there is no more suffering and there is no more pain. Amen? Amen. Keep the big picture in mind. Philip Fiancy wrote, By those words, rejoice and be glad. The apostles did not intend a grin and bear it or act tough like nothing happened attitude. No trace of those attitudes can be found in Christ's response to suffering or in Paul's. Nor is there any masochistic hint of enjoying the pain. Rejoicing in suffering does not mean that Christians should act happy about tragedy and pain when they feel like crying. Such a view distorts honesty and true expression of feelings. Christianity is not phony. The Bible's spotlight is on the end result, the use God can make of suffering in our lives. But before he can produce that result, he first needs our commitment of trust in him. And the process of giving him that commitment can be described as rejoicing. The believer needs to keep looking up and looking beyond the unpleasantness of the trial and find joy that God is going to accomplish good in it and through it. Amen.
Lord, we are so very, very thankful for your word and that you inspired James to write these words that have encouraged Christians for 2,000 years. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much, for, for, for saving us from our sin, for, for adopting us as your children, for wanting to be with us and preparing a place where we can be with you for all eternity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. And thus we end the introductory look at the book of James. Uh, As I've said several times, Pastor Layton will jump into a verse-by-verse study of the book of James as we continue in these uh, series of messages. This is the study that Pastor Layton will be involved in if you attend the church. You can find out more about the service times and, of course, the campus location on the web at highlands.us. That's highlands.us. I'm Mike Trout, and we present this daily visit from Church of the Highlands as an outreach from the ministry. And if you're in the San Bruno area and are interested in a church home, a place where you can grow in the study of God's Word, then I encourage you to check out Church of the Highlands. Again, that website, highlands.us. Have a great rest of your day, and join us tomorrow at this same time when we'll return to study the Word of God verse by verse.